This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. More vaccines are on the way. Some questions, though, about how effective they'll be. Johnson & Johnson says its vaccine appears to protect against COVID with just one shot, 66%, compared to Moderna and Pfizer, over 90. Novavax might not fare as well against the South African variant, AstraZeneca. It's in Europe. We'll sort these out in just a bit. California opening back up slowly after getting hit hard by the virus and is being criticized for it. There's a startup company might put an end to sick days as we know them. Later, we will look into how differences in opinions and behavior over the coronavirus can put a strain on relationships. We start with vaccines, what to expect. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. So, doctor, does it matter to people which vaccine they get as long as they, you know, get a vaccine? Well, you make a good point. And as we always say, the best vaccine to get is the one available to you right now, (laughs) particularly in the context of a pandemic. Now, there may be some nuances, and so I don't want to be too broad, but let's say, for example, that uh, somebody had an anaphylactic reaction to uh, one of the mRNA vaccines. We don't have data yet, but likely we'll be developing the idea that, well, maybe then we'll give you a different kind of vaccine. Or if we knew you had um, uh, anaphylactic reaction to a component of the mRNA vaccine, we wouldn't give that one to you. We'd use a different vaccine such as Johnson & Johnson. Do you expect to see some other changes when there are more available maybe? I mean, is it that young people will end up with more of the Johnson & Johnson? You know, that's a, that's a very interesting question and a strategy that I myself have thought might be worthwhile. Number one, you can store this vaccine for longer periods of time. Number two, it's a single dose. Number three, the vaccine efficacy against hospitalization and death was 100%. Where we saw some decrease is in South Africa, where the South African variant was causing infections. And then overall efficacy against moderate to severe disease was about 57%. So in young, healthy people that have a much lower risk of being hospitalized or dying, that might be a very good option for them. Well, and and let's for a second talk about this so-called South African variant, because a lot of people are very concerned and understandably so about the efficacy of all of these vaccines against it. But Kind of the same question I asked at the at the top. Uh, is a person confronted, perhaps, in the future uh, by the African, South African variant of the coronavirus better off with or without any of these vaccinations? Would it make a difference? Or are these vaccinations absolutely no good against it? No, absolutely better with getting the vaccine. And, and again, let me take you through that. I'll speak somewhat broadly for the sake of simplicity, but in both the uh, Novavax and the Johnson & Johnson study, so carried out in a a timeframe where these variants were circulating. By the way, the mRNA vaccines weren't tested uh, during this time period. They were tested earlier. What we saw is very high efficacy in preventing severe disease, 90% or better for these even in the context of uh, the South African variant. Where you begin to see differences is in 
efficacy against moderate to severe disease. And of course, they didn't even look really at mild disease. So it's a little bit like saying, okay, you're going to have a car crash. Do you want the seatbelt or not? Because it'll <laughs> decrease the chance. It'll decrease the chance that you, you know, you die. Yeah. In terms of approvals, what are we looking at? Johnson and Johnson could go first, and how long? And do we expect AstraZeneca or Novavax here in this country? Yes, I think we'll uh, likely see both of them come up to the FDA. I believe that J and J. Uh, will be in February, probably the earlier part of February, that it, it will come up to the advisory committee. And uh, uh, Novavax and um, AstraZeneca will probably be more, I'm going to guess, in the March-April time frame. I know here in, in Los Angeles, uh, where some groups are just in the very early stages of getting vaccinated, so we probably have more people, as my guess, who have had on these two-shot vaccines, Moderna and, and Pfizer, one shot, not yet the second one. And I'm sure they're interested in finding out, do they have any protection at all, or do they have to wait until the second one? Uh, so are you are you asking after one dose of mRNA yeah, vaccine, yes, are we, they protected? Yeah, because yes. we, we have an awful lot of people who have just now in L.A. County yeah, gotten yeah. the first one, and they're still almost a month away, depending yeah. on whether it's Moderna or, or Pfizer for yeah. the second. Exactly. So what we know from the trials is that uh, you've got about 50% protection until you get to about 14 days after that first dose. And people will develop protection as high as 80%. And when you get that second dose, it, it boosts your immune system such that you're up in the 90s. So they have so 50% so uh, how soon after the first dose? Uh, within seven to 10 days. All right. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Poland, thanks for coming back. The hardest hit region in the world over the past several weeks, California. Cases and deaths shooting up in November and are now just starting to decline. The governor looked at the numbers, decided to lift stay-at-home that prevented outdoor dining and other activities. Slow reopening being criticized. One of the critics, Dr. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, member of the president's COVID-19 advisory board. So, doctor, are we opening up too soon? Well, first of all, the elected officials, whether they be at the city, county, or state level, are under tremendous pressure from so many including business owners who really are suffering immensely to get open back up. And uh, this is where we clearly need the kind of federal support to help us trying to respond to this pandemic by not putting the pressure there financially, at least. Um, and what I worry about as many of my colleagues is that we tend to be in that mode of responding to this pandemic by pumping the brakes after we wrap the tr car around the tree. That's <laughs> how we do it. What we're very worried about, very worried about, is that over the course of the next six to 14 weeks, we're going to see this British uh, variant, the one from the United Kingdom uh, here in the United States, take off. And if you know anything about what's been happening in Europe over the course of the last uh, two months, it's been dramatic, absolutely dramatic. They've had to go in complete total lockdowns, even telling people not to leave their homes because of the rapid increase in cases and the overrun of their hospitals. That's been true in countries like Ireland, 
uh, in, in Denmark, uh, in Portugal, etc. And it's because of this variant uh, form of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19. It's here, it's in the United States, it's gonna take off. And the problem we have is by the time we uh, you know, do something, the case numbers have taken off and it takes us forever to chase it. The other thing is we're starting from a much higher baseline. Uh, if you look back in the early days of the pandemic, when we you know, hit 32,000 cases a day in April, we thought it couldn't get any worse. And then we got them down to finally about 20,000 cases a day over Memorial Day. Right now in the United States, we're talking about 165 to 170,000 cases every day. We're talking about 4,000 deaths every day. We're talking about 110,000 hospitalized patients every day. Now add this new uh, increase in cases on top of that. And in California, you've got those same kind of numbers. They're increased. We will soon see our hospitals again under tremendous challenge, basically to just provide basic health care. So, so this is a challenge. Is there a, is there a happy medium that works or is that just not on the table anymore? This I, don't far think it, in? I don't think it's on the table in the sense that um, people are saying, look at the case numbers that come way down. Remember, we were at 300,000 cases in the United States on January 8th. Here we sit here today at the end of the month, January 29th, and we're at 165,000. People say, look at this is good, a good direction. We have basically shifted uh, the, the baseline that we use for what's important. If we'd had 165 to 185,000 cases back in May, we would have gone, oh my, this is a crisis beyond crisis. And yet now today, because it's less cases, uh, than it was a month ago, we think it's okay. The problem is this next round of cases associated with this new virus are gonna be unlike anything I think we've seen from the beginning of the pandemic. It is the darkest of the darkest days. And you know, I, I, I know people will say, well, that's hysterical. You know, People said that to me back in, in early September when I said at that time when we were at 20,000 cases a day that I thought we'd be at 200,000 cases a day by Thanksgiving. No way could it happen. We were there. We were at 200,000 cases a day at Thanksgiving. I don't even know how high it's going to get this time. It's surely going to surpass the 300,000 cases a day by a long shot. Now, the, but, the, but the vaccines uh, are apparently effective against this so-called UK variant. Is it just that we won't have enough people vaccinated? Exactly. If you look at the president's very aggressive plan, which I celebrate, I very much support, the, if you even have 100 million doses out there by the end of March, we're not talking about you know another 30 days later to make the 100 days in the administration. Let's just say by the end of March, that's 33 million people to get two doses and 33 million people to get one dose, i.e. they haven't had this chance to get the second dose yet. If you add that up, that's only about 12% of the US population will be protected. So you can see that this coronavirus is gonna have a lot of human wood to burn over the course of the next uh, six to 14, 20 weeks. We will eventually with vaccine do a much better job as we get into the summer months and more people get vaccinated. I hear people say we're in a race right now with the variant in this next burst of cases. And I, my answer is no, no, no. The variant won a long time ago. We could not vaccinate enough people quick enough right now. That's why the kind of measures we're talking about, closing down restaurants, et cetera, which again, to those owners, those people who work there, this is a tragedy. We needed help take care of you. I understand that. And uh, that's what uh, right now I hope Congress understands and also acts on. 
Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center of Infectious Disease Research Policy, University of Minnesota, member of the President's COVID-19 Advisory Board. Sick workers can slow down any business, especially when they show up to work and get everyone else sick. A startup company based in New York is working to solve that problem. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talked to Christine Schindler, co-founder and CEO of PathSpot, who explained what her product is, how it works to keep people from getting sick. PathSpot is a system that protects businesses from the threat of invisible illnesses by scanning team members' hands to make sure that they are contaminant-free before they go to work. We work with restaurants, packaging facilities, farms, cafeterias, anywhere where food is handled, stored, and served, and use our product to promote a positive culture around hygiene and sanitation, all while doing a two-second check to make sure that our hands are clean. So this is for people who, you know, they they wash their hands, but maybe they don't wash them as thoroughly as they need to, and then they find out, oh, oh, hey, I got to do a better job here. Exactly. We all know we need to wash our hands for a full 20 seconds and scrub in all those hard-to-reach places. But sometimes in the middle of a busy day, you might miss one of those spots, and we're there as an extra check to make sure that your hands are fully clean and and remind you to wash them the right number of times as well. So it's a scanner that, that looks over your hands. Does it simply just give you a light? Yeah, they're clean, or a light? No, they're not. Does it tell you where on your hands? Help us to visualize this. In the moment, it just gives you a quick rewash, rescan, but we take all the data from that and we're able to create customized trainings that can tell you how often you miss the scan or where on your hands you miss contamination. For all listeners today, um, the most common spots to miss are, or that people miss are underneath fingernails, on wrist areas, or underneath jewelry. We spot those areas and then use them to really encourage proper hygiene for the next hand wash. Now, I know there's got to be some people who say, uh, yeah, there's always going to be something on my hands. You know, how, how sensitive is this? And if you're dealing with food workers, I, I guess we're all hoping it is pretty sensitive. We look for specific contaminants that are indicators of illness. So not all contaminants or not all forms of bacteria that might be on your hand, but the things that could make someone sick. For example, we look for common contaminants that carry foodborne illnesses like E. coli, salmonella, neurovirus, hepa, listeria, for example. So when it comes to, uh, you know, the food service areas, I mean, this is something that you're hoping takes off. You speak as an entrepreneur. That's what the segment is focused on, speaking to entrepreneurs. I mean, you see a hole in the market. You decide to come up with this product. Uh, is this something you've been working on for a long time? Is it something that's been there, but now it's hot because of the pandemic? Help us to understand that, how you decided this is something that would really work. So in my background of biomedical engineering, I recognized this gap and wanted to use my skill set to build something that could solve it, just like you mentioned. We started working on this in 2017, so years before the world turned their attention to hand washing, and we were already getting a lot of traction with restaurant brands and, and raising venture capital money, but definitely at the onset of the pandemic, with the world very focused on hygiene and more education than ever before on the importance of hand washing, it's been a great accelerant for us to expand the product more globally, as well as to raise additional capital so that we can begin to expand into other use cases as well. Yeah, that capital, it's one of the things I was going to ask you about, because that's one, I think, fear of prospective entrepreneurs. Oh, oh, I'm just not going to be able to raise the money. Uh, Just talk about the challenge of actually getting the money you need in order to make the product, uh, expand and get the product out there. 
definitely a challenge. And especially with the first capital we had ever raised, it's so hard to be able to demonstrate your vision. Um, you know, we really focused on getting early adopters and users who would utilize the product and give testimonial to its value. And I think that was the most impactful component for us being able to raise venture capital money at each stage has been customer testimonials, sharing how valuable this is to them and their team and how impactful the product continuing to scale will be and why they would want to use it. And that's been a really big indicator of success for our venture capital partners and investors. Well, good luck to you. It really seems like a fantastic product. Uh, This is Christine Schindler, our entrepreneur this Friday, co-founder and CEO of PathSpot. Coming up after this short break is COVID-19 ruining relationships. Marriages and long-term relationships can be strained because of differences in opinions and behavior over the COVID-19 pandemic. If you wear masks, went out, but your partner says, no way, does it create tension? Do they make you feel bad because you disagree? It's common. With us is Jessica Calarco, sociologist, Indiana University, Dr. Rachel Sussman, psychotherapist, marriage and family therapist. Dr. Sussman, let's start with you. What's going on with some of these couples? Yeah, you know, when there's stress and crisis like there is now, it really, you know, brings out either the best or the worst in you. And usually uh, as as a marriage counselor, we see what brings out the worst. And I am seeing uh, all sorts of iterations of couples having a lot of strife over COVID and a lot of arguing over that. So first it was lockdown, right? Because there was the the thought that we got married, but we didn't expect to spend this much time together. So now we have to get through that. But now we're onto this kind of new thing that's developed more and more is fights over, you know, how serious to take this. And we have, you know, husbands and wives with different perspectives or different partners with different perspectives. And they're getting really angry at each other because from one side, it looks like, why are you going to jeopardize my health by going out and doing what you're doing uh, when we live together? How do you wrap your head around that? And, you know, you, you nailed it. I am definitely seeing a lot of that where there's one partner who wants to be more cautious. Maybe this partner is even overly cautious. And there's one partner who's had it and wants to sort of, you know, have a more laid back approach. And that partner is, is accused of being irresponsible and even dangerous. And I've, uh, I've had a referee some really bad arguments over this, you know. So I guess the question is, you know, how do you handle this? I try, I try to get, cli- you know, my clients to really just calm down, turn down the heat, and I see if we can work on maybe one little issue at a time, like mask wearing or, or how much you should wash your hands in the house or how to deal with the children. Jessica uh, Colarco, uh, is this something that we should be surprised is happening? Uh, are there any sort of historical um, references that you can think of where this has happened before? I mean, I think this is somewhat of a new situation in terms of the the scale of the the stress and the risks that parents are that that couples are facing in terms of making sense of how to respond to COVID nineteen. But these are certainly not new conflicts. We know that disagreements over politics, disagreements over things like how to navigate the balancing of paid work and parenting um, are a key source of disagreements for couples and that they often have different ideas about how to manage risks, how to manage threats to their family's well-being, whether that's a health risk like COVID-19 or whether that's uh, the risks that come with uh, parenting more generally. You know, just an unscientific survey of, of you know, posts that I see from people. And, and all along, there's been people who've gone, you know, this is my point. I'm having a really tough time. But I'm seeing more of them now. And I'm wondering if you think it has to do with 
us being close, but so far when it comes to the vaccines, like we were waiting for vaccines, right? And then now a lot of people are having a really tough time because you've got the frustration built into that. And this is turning into the breaking point for a lot of people. Sure. I mean, we know that these patterns are gendered to some extent in terms of uh, response, mask wearing. It, it, we know that women are more likely than men to report wearing masks during the pandemic. We know that uh, from surveys that we've done uh, ourselves nationally, we just fielded a survey of 2,000 parents and it showed that on average women are taking more steps uh, to, to take the pandemic seriously and are also reporting that they're doing more than their partners in many cases as well. And that leads to, and that's linked to gender differences in politics, that women on average are uh, more liberal leaning than their partner than their men partners. And so that can lead to some tensions uh, within couples and, and certainly the way that the pandemic has been politicized uh, that exacerbates those longstanding tensions and also exacerbates tensions around the fact that women are disproportionately the ones who are the health managers within the family. They're the ones who are tasked with, in many cases, making decisions about their family's health. And so if you have partners disagreeing about that, that can then blow up as a, a source of conflict within the household. Dr. Sessman, I'm wondering, you know, to try to get maybe a little bit of a silver lining in a way out of this, uh, could this, at least for some couples, end up being a good thing because by finding out that they really don't agree on a lot of fundamental issues, uh, i.e. health, uh, that maybe they weren't destined to be together in the first place, so maybe it's a good thing? Well, I would say for dating couples or couples who are living together but not married, you know, I have witnessed a lot of breakups. And the way I tend to look at this is that if it wasn't meant to be, it's a good thing. Pick up the pieces and move on. But I think for married couples and married couples with children, it's a little more complicated. And I have quite a few clients who have told me they feel very stuck. Um, you know, everyone's wondering what the divorce rates will be after COVID, but it is hard to and you know, end a marriage and get divorced during COVID and look for an apartment and everything else. Uh, but also to your lat, to your guests, other guests, um, what she was talking, you know, to what she was talking about. I'm seeing a lot of issues happen, you know, happening just like she described over gender lines, where men are being uh, more irresponsible with COVID, and the women are really the ones who are feeling that they're the ones that are the caretakers of the children and dealing with, you know, the health crisis. Some of this is about being aware of whatever you think and what you do and how they're going to think about it. Because you got to be careful you're not, like, accidentally gaslighting each other. Uh, yes, I think as a therapist, that's something I'm, I'm, always, I'm always looking for. But, you know, and I think although couples have always had these problems, life was very different before COVID and there was a lot going on and it was easy to either brush the problems under the rug or go out to dinner, have a good time. But now every just everything seems so much more magnified and couples that are bickering what i'm finding is that that's becoming the center of their universe you know like they're arguing all the time whereas in the past you were, they were able to resolve things easier and to move on easier and unfortunately, there there is gaslighting that is happening. Some of the moms that we've interviewed during the pandemic um, have described incidents of gaslighting. I interviewed one mom who's an ICU nurse who has seen patients die of COVID-19, and yet her husband refuses to wear a mask. And, and she told us in, in an interview, she said, my husband thinks I'm crazy, uh, that we need to shut down the economy or that we need to be wearing masks. And, and certainly for her, that was a tremendous source of stress and having huh. to deal with her work and what she was experiencing at home. All right. Jessica Colarco, sociologist, Indiana University, Dr. Rachel Sussman, psychotherapist, marriage and family therapist. Thanks to you both. If you do something for a long time and then don't do it for a while, then do it again. You might be a little rusty. Pilots experience the same thing, except their rustiness could lead to major problems and potential disaster. 
Pilots who haven't flown much during the pandemic are now getting back into the air, and there have been some problems. Aviation experts and airline representatives say when pilots are inactive for several months, their skills and proficiency deteriorate. Among the most common errors are coming in too fast or too high during a landing or forgetting to get clearance from the air traffic control tower before descending to a lower altitude. One pilot preparing to pull a passenger jet away from an airport gate forgot to disengage the parking brake damaging a whole part of a towing vehicle. (laughs) Happens to the best of us. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.